Hello, my name is Frank Harrison. I'm the Regional Security Director, North America with World Travel Protection. Thank you for joining us as we present a two-part series on Ukraine and first-person experiences. In part one, we are joined by Liam Ryan. Welcome to Navigate. Liam, I'll get you to introduce yourself, who you are, and your organization. Yeah, sure. It's, uh, my name's Liam Ryan. I'm the CEO of GM Risk Group. Uh, we're a private security firm who specializes in protective services and consulting in high-risk and complex environments. All right, so GM Risk, how did you end up in the Ukraine? So initially, we got a lot of experience working with media firms and uh, with the, the conflict that was escalating there. We had a, a, a few clients who were interested in covering that. And uh, so we headed in at the beginning of January. And initially, it was around the intelligence gathering and uh, putting all this together so that we could have better awareness and put together assessments and planning for the clients and and then we, uh, as that sort of unfolded, uh, as they, they do with media, very reactive and that, that, that grew with the, the number of clients we're looking after in the field. And then it, it sort of uh, it grew from there uh, on this occasion. But uh, we spent a lot of time with media in uh, different conflict zones around the globe. So it's, um, media was the initial draw card. So you're on the ground. You were doing your assessments. You're supporting these teams. With the work that you were doing and the build-ups for your clients, were you seeing a disconnect from what you were identifying on the ground to what was being perceived by the general population and the general media external to the clients that you were protecting? It's actually a, a good question, and it is something you sort of noted as we're going through that process. And and the, the the propaganda for from both sides, I guess, and the messages that get pushed out, and, and it happens on both sides, and uh, and just seeing that the, the way that the, that actually impacts the the mood of the of the cities and the and the allied forces and the, the mood back in other countries as well, and um, and during that sort of the early stages, uh, I think it's important for especially for people in our industry that. To, to have perspective of what's going on and not necessarily the rights and wrongs, but there's always two sides and being able to sort of filter through what's being pushed out in the media and those narratives that they, that, you know, uh, they do follow and push out. It's uh, There is a disparity depending on who you listen to and it's really about spending the time on the ground, uh, finding out what those ground truths are for yourself also listening to the narratives from both sides, but you need to be able to be there to be able to uh, really have a, a good understanding of, of what the actual situation is. So you've got the ground truths. You're, you're seeing what your organization's picking up. Was it obvious that there was going to be an invasion or did it just happen? Uh, look, all, all the signs uh, were there when it, it escalated from the, the, the war games or suggested war games, and the, the troops gathered, and you know, uh, from the down in the, the the Black Sea to up around Belarus, and as they positioned themselves. But I, I think the, the the narratives from the the Western forces or NATO, they were really sort of hesitant in in saying that the the invasion was as imminent as it was. Uh, all the signs were definitely there, uh, but 
that was a little bit harder to tell of, of when that first button was going to be pushed, essentially. So you're waiting for the button to be pushed. How did you prepare your own personal teams? So at that point in time, we were, uh, I was personally uh, in Kiev uh, when it, uh, it first escalated and the, the missile strikes were, were coming in. How we prepared for that was uh, putting the contingencies in place that are that based off the, the back of the, the risk assessment and the, and the intelligence that we gathered. So we, we gathered that from the open source uh, intelligence were aligned with other uh, intelligence gathering agencies and we also use the the ground troops from our, our, our guys out in the field but so with the, our emergency procedures and mitigation strategies sort of roll off the back of those those reports so what we were essentially doing at the beginning is ensuring that our, our accommodation had adequate uh, cover so in the event that there was a, an escalation that we uh, the accommodation was, was structurally sound uh, that we had uh, bomb shelters, uh, essentially somewhere to go. Uh, we had rations. We had uh, power. Uh, we had our our vehicles. We had our evac routes, safe houses, and, and uh, ability to move. So uh, that around all the you know your PPE, the the training of the clients, and and your communications uh, is all everything. All still needs to be in play, but it's uh, at those early stages that they're the things that we're we're looking at. So in the early stages, if there was one thing that occurred, did you have any major lessons learned once the invasion happened or were your systems just in play and you had a seamless uh, transition into the conflict? I don't know if uh, seamless is ever a word that is used in those environments, but <laughs> look, um, the nature of what we do is um, it's, I guess it's a little bit different in its application as opposed to a, a standard security detail. Uh, and you know, there's a few reasons for that, especially when you, you have, if you're focusing on a, as media, uh, as a client, they're, they're very reactive. And, uh, you know, on, in a standard sort of risk management format, the, the easiest way to reduce the likelihood is to remove yourself from from the situation, but the reality is that, that that's not going to happen. So you've got, uh, with the, the information that you gather, uh, you you use that to best try to forecast, uh, you know, what could happen or areas where it may escalate and, and move, but you're not always able to do that. And so being able to have these systems in place and, and plans and procedures to, to follow in the, the event of an escalation, that all has to be able to be uh, moulded very quickly to be able to change to the environment that you're operating in because it can go from, you know, bustling city uh, to taking cover from uh, airstrikes or when you're pushing further uh, to, to the east now with uh, artillery and the likes, those sorts of things can change the environment completely very quickly. So with regards to having seamless transitions, they're, they're never seamless, but having the ability and the experience of working in those environments, having working with your teams and the, the confidence in the support and operations support that you get as well, 
that allows us to be able to work in those environments uh, fluidly and that's what gives us the the access and that that freedom of movement so although that you've got the uh, procedures in place they need to be able to be molded to uh, the environment at at any given time so I don't want to put you in a position where you've you've got active clients on the ground now Looking back on the first two months of the conflict and being out with media teams, is there one lesson learned from working with media teams that you can share that people can look at, whether it's from a personal or business travel, or just dealing with uh, high-value assets and moving around in a conflict zone? Um, The... There's lessons to be learned in every situation, but um, if it would be a lesson that to share, uh, I, I would say it's more along the lines of uh, complacency is is normally the biggest thing that creeps in with with clients. Uh, if you if something's quiet for a few days, or they hear that uh, somebody was able to access a location and uh, they did it safely. That uh, if they're not directly impacted by things, uh, there's a, a level of complacency that can creep up pretty quick. And it's part of our uh, role in advising the client and being with them on the ground that we keep people grounded and make sure that you are always prepared for for any situation at any given time. And that's but normally the, the sort of the biggest takeaway for clients that it is that it, it can happen, it does happen. And just because somebody had a bit of luck, it doesn't mean that you should not prepare properly uh, for, for any possible scenario. When the conflict broke out, what were f- some of the first things that you saw from perspective of Ukrainian forces and Russian forces? So when it uh, it was interesting to watch, to be honest. It, um, so the as late January, uh, early Feb, the the mood in the cities changed, uh, and as they started to bunker in and set up uh, road checkpoints, and 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 you've got the the Ukrainian forces, and then you have a uh, civil defence, which is a line down from that, and then at that point in time was when uh, martial law came in as well. So uh, 16 to 65-year-old males were no, no longer allowed to leave the country, and still not, and they were also giving arms to, to the public as well. Um, so where we were uh, in the cities, the, the, they were locked down, but at that point in the, the initial uh, invasion from where we were in Kiev, it was down, for, it was from Belarus from the north, uh, where they came down and ended up coming down through to, to Butcher and Irpin, which is uh, just on the outskirts of uh, on the, the north of the, the Kiev city. So at that point, the forces were uh, deployed outside of, of those areas. But uh, as the, that the the first sort of couple of days, the the tension sort of really grew, and there was scepticism about media in particular uh, because the, they had uh, sabotage coming in and giving away locations and uh, from the, the Russian side. 
So the, the Ukrainian forces became quite sceptical about uh, press and who they were and who were they talking to. And that became a, 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 it became a bit of a problem, actually, uh, because they, they, they normally, the, we would be on with the Ukrainian side as, as, and they would be somewhat our safe haven. But uh, on a number of occasions, uh, we would be interrogated uh, as such. It could be roadside or pulled out of the car and checked for your, your permits and, and then everything's lined up in, in that sense. But uh, as that, that sort of progressed as well, and because you've got those three tiers of uh, the, the Ukrainian forces, when it gets down to the lower level and you get outside of the cities, you've got almost like little villages and uh, each city has a, a group of the local men who will be defending uh, that little part of their town. So so by that stage, you've got you know, escalating tensions and, and the conflict, uh, mistrust with, uh, with who people are and somewhat insider threats. You've got uh, the civilians are armed, uh, so not necessarily trained on how to use a firearm and, and safely. Add alcohol into the mix of that as well. Uh, it, you know, it's a, it's not a good recipe. And uh, in those that first sort of week or so, that was the tensions were quite high. So we've got the invasion. We're watching on our televisions. We're watching the Russian forces going into Hostomel and other areas around Kiev. When was your first experience meeting with uh, the Russian forces or the areas that they had occupied and the impacts they had on the local environment? So we had um, teams heading they, who headed up north. We had teams right across the, the, the country through, throughout February, but uh, the first time that we got to see the, the real aftermath would have been in that uh, – just pushed out, just past uh, Irpin Butcher on the, that northern side of Kiev because of the, the clients that were with her at the time and the, the service that we're providing on this occasion are not kinetic at all. So uh, we're, we're not standing alongside a, a gunfight as such. But the, the responding to sort of our, our first person on the scene after, it was around the, the, those northern outskirts of Kiev. So you guys were effectively keeping your media team separate from contact with uh, Russian forces then? Yes. Yeah, so at the, the early stages of the conflict, uh, you know, things that are also important to take into consideration is just to, we knew what weapon systems were there. Uh, we knew what tactics uh, you know, the Russians have used previously, but there's still a, an element that you need to, see how that's going to unfold in the battlefield and being that we're there to provide a service as well where you know where we we can't be reckless in in our advisory of where is and it's not safe until such time as we've got the the information that we we require to make those decisions but um very close but the for obvious reasons that the Ukrainians don't necessarily want media attached to to their forward-mounted teams as well. And there's a lot of 
flexibility that they need to be able to maneuver on the battlefield. Yeah, and they don't they don't want people necessarily knowing where they are and everything they're getting up to because it's uh, that element of surprise is gone. So, with our backgrounds and our military training, was there anything you saw or observed there that you found shocking from a perspective of being a soldier or a former soldier? I'm not actually a former soldier myself. The tactics have been used by, by the Russians were, were somewhat very predictable for with the, the you know the information we're getting in the the way that it played out and it's it, I think it's it's been a long time since a, a almost conventional war has has taken place in in the on the scale that this has. Majority of the clients that we're working with, uh, most of their experiences is in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, the the space there is is very different, and uh, so to see the the tactics that, are, that were being used by by the Russians and and, and countered by, uh, by the by the Ukrainians, it's not so much of a surprise, but uh, certainly generationally, from from my perspective of seeing that actually play out, it was was different. Yeah, my background, I was a unit combat int NCO in Germany. So the Warsaw Pact was our bread and butter. And some of my former peers and colleagues, when we were watching the buildup and watched the actual invasion, we were stunned that the tactics, you know, it was 1989 redux and we were shocked. But now we're seeing the consequences of that and you're on the ground. So you must be seeing absolute devastation that's being presented by the way these battle groups are working. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the aftermath of the, you know, indiscriminate shelling and somewhat dumb bombs and, um, is, a you know, they're still getting targeted on a daily basis, but that's pretty much decimated and, you know that, that that's been the, the reoccurring pattern of the tactics of being able to sit back at a, a distance and, and uh, shell the, the the cities until such time and the forward positions of the Ukrainians until that they can uh, they can move in. But um, in saying that, the the you know the Ukrainians have done a, a really good job and uh, the the will to fight uh, is is strong and, and it's. You know, occupation. I, I couldn't see that happening from day one because it's uh, they would be fighting from door to door. It's uh, it's uh, certainly a different um, uh, a different motivation. You know, <laughs> from from the Russian yeah. for, to to the Ukrainian side. Yeah, because the Russians are invading as an occupier, and the Ukrainians are staying staying alive to keep their country and get to tomorrow. Their way of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you had two months on the ground, a um, lot of lessons there. You're out on break. Are you looking forward to going back? It's yes. It's, um, you know, it's a hundred percent. I want to get back in there and continue to work. It's the situation there, you know, it is still as active as it was on day one, but it just 
it doesn't get the the frontline news articles that, that I did so you know, a couple of months back. But there's there's a lot of activity. There's there's a lot of people who need help. Uh, there's a lot of people who are trying to provide help who need assistance to get in and get out. So there's uh, training for their police, their, their first responders, their, their field hospitals. And so there's a lot of things that uh, need to be done. And it's, it is it is difficult at times to, to rotate out and sit at home whilst, you know, things like that are going. But um, you, know, you, you have to do it from top to top. So normally I'd ask, you know, for someone who's traveling, you know, what would be your top three picks of advice for someone that's traveling? But in this environment where there's a large international body of people that are trying to get into the Ukraine for other logistics or military support or non-government organizations, civil society, looking at this external movement of persons off top ahead, what are the three things you would recommend to people before they head towards the Ukraine? So d- depending on, on what their you know the, their objectives are in the field and what they're going to be associated with and and how that may sort of be betrayed or, or where they're staying and the the chain of thought of that is is how that they can be identified or associated with uh, especially with the the tensions that are arising now to uh, the possible uh, attack of uh, or further attack of supply chains. Of anyone who's uh, for providing aid from NATO forces, so things like uh, your technology uh, it has been ways that they've been able to identify foreigners uh, previously when they attacked the the training compound uh, just north of Lviv uh, a couple of months back. Uh, so using local numbers, don't don't uh, use your your primary number on those local networks. They should be using VPNs, uh, so they're not lo- uh, logging on to, to Wi-Fi. And that goes across all, all your devices as well. And um, so that uh, Russia is really, really good from a, a cyber perspective. So it's uh, it's important to make sure that your, your information and your, your personal information or identity are controlled. That the, the next would be having adequate communication capability. So with regards to your uh, navigation and communications, not just relying on cellular, but also having uh, a satellite capability so that you have got the ability to be able to reach out or or navigate your way out in the event that uh, infrastructure uh, went down or other uh, ECM equipment was uh, taking your cellular capability away. And then you want to make sure that you have got the ability to be able to move uh, 24 hours a day. So when I say that, you you need to have access to a vehicle and it's uh, not that you get a cab when you want to get around, but even as far across in Lviv that we've seen consistently that that has, has been shelled as well. And so it's not a safe haven. So going back to that complacency, that, that could sort of sneak in pretty quickly. So trying to protect yourself from uh, and your identity from, from being hacked or targeted, 
making sure that you've got the ability to be able to communicate and reach out to people if you need assistance and making sure that you're you're able to move at any time so you, you don't get stuck in a situation where you don't want to be. That's really good advice. So local mobile device on a local network, VPN to protect your uh, internet communications, the ability to communicate and locate, and ultimately flexibility of movement so you can get around or even self-evacuate. Great advice, Liam. Liam, amazing work. You're in what is currently one of the world's most dangerous places when you return. You've been involved in witnessing some incredible things and the effort of the Ukrainian people to save their way of life. Is there anything you'd like to share before we close out? I guess it's um, it's been great to, to be part of a such a a large scale sort of a operation. It's not something that you ever really want to have to be part of, but it's uh, you know, the, the, these environments. You know, they bring out the best and the, and the, the worst in people, and it's uh, it, it's it's inspiring to to be around other people who are on the ground there. Uh, giving and sacrificing their time and, you know, people sacrificing their lives for for what they believe in and, and just because, you know, that, that they believe that's the right thing to do. So it's, um, you know, it's inspiring to be around that. It's, um, I'm happy to get back in there and get back into it. Liam, thank you for sharing your personal story and the story of GM Risk and joining us on Navigate. and. I wish you the best of success and safety on your return. And thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for joining part one of a two-part series on Ukraine. In this episode, we focus on the work of Liam Ryan and his company, GM Risk. Looking for the best travel podcast to inspire your upcoming adventures while also helping you travel smarter. Listen to Navigate, the top travel podcast that enhances the way you explore the world found on our worldtravelprotection.com site under our Travel Assist Hub. In each episode, our World Travel Protection hosts speak with a travel industry expert or experienced everyday traveler to bring you thought-provoking travel insights, experiences, and advice helping empower you to travel the world confidently. Until next time, I am Frank Harrison.